Welcome to Activation Energy by the Chemical Angel Network. My name is Selma Duhovich. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Anders Halsby of Mazarin Ventures, a firm that backs early stage innovations that improve efficiencies and mitigate wastewater risks. Anders has a PhD in chemical engineering and has worked at Dow and Nelco, which is now part of Ecolab. He has spent 30 years at the interface of chemistry and water, developing, launching, and managing multiple new water-related products. Thank you for coming on the show, Anders. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start with your background. Where does your expertise lie and what kind of roles and responsibilities have you held throughout your career? So I have a technical background. I got a PhD and and a master's degree in chemical engineering from Cornell and also a master's degree from Chalmers University of Technology, which is located in my hometown of Gothenburg, Sweden. Uh, So I started actually my thesis work at Cornell was around membranes using what was called membrane bioreactors for producing biological agents. And I continued this in my initial role when I joined Dow, but then after a few years transitioned into a role where I worked with membranes instead to purify water and recover valuable compounds from from whatever matrix they were in. So in my last role at Dow, I was leading their, their activities in developing new markets for membranes and ion exchange resins, as well as absorbents, and building a business around use cases where the main purpose was not really to recover pure water, but to re- recover some kind of, of material from that matrix. It could be something as varied as amino acid from fermentation broths, or zinc from geothermal brine. So, I mean, it, it ranged throughout in a variety of different uh, kind of compounds, but not the traditional kind of technology for recovering pure water. Then when I joined Nalco, uh, I helped grow the business around uh, using chemicals that keep membrane systems operating. So these are, here we're talking about things like scale inhibitors. We're talking things like biocides and cleaners. And you use these to keep the system running as well as to recover performance once they have been become dirty. Uh, and then uh, these types of membrane systems operated in all kinds of waters. It could be anything from a, a pretty clean aquifer to a, a pond water in a power plant to seawater in an offshore oil platform. Beyond that, uh, at Nalco, I led the development of the kind of IoT type technologies for monitoring membrane and systems and other kind of water treatment systems uh, and developed technologies that allowed even small operators to operate the systems as well as a big mega diesel plants. So you've spent your entire career in this field. Why? Why are you so passionate about water and the corresponding technologies? It is really a fascinating area to me because water is something that we are all so familiar with. We use it every day, but at the same time, it's always a means to an end. So you need it for the most basic purposes, but also for the the industrial purposes and, and for every other thing. So we use it every day and it is just interesting how how you can get it to the quality that you need it to be for the intended purpose. So let's then dig into this. How do you define 
wastewater? And what does the system level treatment process actually look like? So, you know, it, there is no real definition of wastewater. To me, at least the way I look at it is there are just a different levels of impaired wastewater, of water. So water with different kinds of contaminants in it. And the, 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 depending on what's in the water, it may or may not be suitable to drink, but it may still be suitable for other purposes. So for the treatment, whether you're treating wastewater or it, it creating drinking water, the treatment trains are pretty similar. So, so water is a, a, the matrix that contains a, everything. And, and once you have removed the macroscopic materials like branches, plastic bags, and other stuff, you need to remove the suspended solids as well as sometimes dissolved solids. And, and how much you need to remove is really a function of what is the intended purpose for the water. Can you elaborate on that? Can you talk about the different applications that require clean water and the contaminants that need to be removed from each one? Uh, so I can't talk about that as water fit for use. What does it take to make the water use, usable for its intended purpose? So if you're making potable water, you want to make sure there are no suspended material microbes, in addition to no dissolved toxic materials such as heavy metals. Now, if you're making water for agricultural use, it does not need to meet drinking water specifications. Whereas if you're making semiconductor quality water, uh, the potable water quality is nowhere close to clean enough. Uh, and in fact, semiconductor water is probably the cleanest ones you can get. It's even cleaner than the water they use when they pre prepare IV solutions. Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, so it has a whole range of qualities. And, and water, once you get it really clean, behaves in interesting ways, it becomes very corrosive. So you cannot use metal pipes for it anymore. You have to use a kind of Teflon type materials to pump the water, because otherwise it will pick up, it will suck out the, the, the metals from the pipe. I, I've heard stories about desalination plants coming online and distributing their water and because the water is so pure, it ended up dissolving the cement pipes that distributed the water. So there's, there's a lot of interesting things going on with water. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. Um, what about the treatment process itself? What are the most predominant technologies used to treat water today? So the specific treatment steps, it really depends on both what the source water looks like and what the end use purpose is. Um, so typical unit operations are things like screening, dissolved air flotation, DAF, coagulation and flocculation, uh, micro and ultrafiltration, nanofiltration and reverse osmosis. And then there are more processes for disinfecting the water. It could be through chemistry addition or through UV radiation. So there, there are a lot of different unit operations used in treating the water. I can't help but wonder what the energy consumption profile for these treatment processes looks like. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, clearly one of the most energy intensive processes is uh, doing what's called reverse osmosis, or actually even more than that, uh, if you look at thermal desalination, where basically you distill the water, that's probably the most energy intensive operation. But then even things like a wastewater treatment, 
if you look at the wastewater treatment plant, one of the biggest operating costs is electricity because they use uh, blowers for aerating the, the sludge and, and, and the, the, the wastewater to get the microbes to grow. And when you have those blowers, uh, you use a fair amount of electricity to get that going. So uh, even those basic operations require a fair amount of energy. Things like UV, uh, it has come down in, in energy consumption because people are getting more into using a UV LEDs rather than using the, the, the light, the UV uh, bulbs. But um, I would say that generally speaking, the, the RO, a reverse osmosis, is considered the, the most energy intensive type of unit operation, which is one of the reasons why it sometimes can be contentious when you look at locating an RO plant somewhere to kind of replace an existing groundwater supply. So having been in the industry your whole life, you're now investing in it. What kind of innovations and trends are you seeing in this space today? So I, I see a couple of kind of technology trends that is driving innovation and, and that is kind of accentuating the need for, for new, new things. Um, there, there is something called distributed water treatment. Uh, today, you, you have these very large water treatment plants in, in, in a city, for example, and uh, you need to have pipes to go to all of them and you need to maintain it and all of that. And get, it's really costly uh, to, to maintain and to, uh, if you're going to expand the capacity, you may not have space for it and all of that. So what we are seeing more is a, a drive towards distributed treatment. We have smaller kind of satellite plants that do the treatment locally instead, and they might be able to even reuse the water locally. And you can see it coming down to even the size of individual apartment buildings will have their own treatment. You're starting to see some of that, and gray water recycle and things like that. So that's one trend that more distributed treatment, getting away from the big plants. <clears throat> Another thing that you're seeing is that uh, there's a fair amount of chemistry used in water treatment. They use a uh, polymers and things like that to help clarify the water. Um, and, and there is a drive towards going towards non-fossil based, there are versions of these chemistries, so non-petrochemical based. So, so you're seeing that as well and, and interested going in that direction. A, a third kind of trend we're seeing is point source recycle. So if you're looking at say an automotive plant, um, rather than trying to treat all the wastewater coming out at the back end, they're looking at ways for treating a particular part. So for example, you have the e-coat paint line. Can you recycle the water from the e-coat paint line without affecting the quality of the paint job? So you look at point source kind of recycle. So in, in, I have a couple of more, I have energy recycle or energy recovery from waste. Uh, so when you are actually digesting wastewater, uh, wastewater uh, you're having microbes that are kind of uh, acting on them and they're uh, generating energy per se, but how do you capture that? And there are a couple of ways to do that. There are basically the traditional way, which is anaerobic fermentation, where basically you make methane and you can burn that methane. And there, that exists in some places where actually you have um, wastewater plants that are almost self-sufficient on energy with the methane that they generate themselves. Or you have something like, like microbial fuel cells uh, and uh, one of the, the chemical engine network invested companies, AquaCycle, is doing this fuel cell kind of approach 
where you, they, instead of making methane, you make electricity uh, and you can have the bugs make electricity for you. you, you the other kind of ma massive trend we are seeing is, is IoT and, and data and big data and using that for a variety of purposes that in combination with machine learning and AI, uh, optimizing performance of individual plants, you're looking at it for <clears throat> kind of a minimizing water footprint, et cetera, uh, called the digital twins, where you basically have a model running in parallel with the, the operation. Um, another trend is the use of alternative water sources. You can no longer use the high quality water. So how can you start using your own wastewater? Or how can you start using a much lower quality source? And, and then there is a, a kind of a demographic a challenge as well that a, there you have what sometimes is referred to as a silver tsunami, people retiring. And, and how do you replace a skilled labor? And that's another trend that machine learning and AI is coming into play here to, to help a, say a big municipal water plant a, operate with, with new staff but retaining the expertise from, from the retiring staff. So there, there are lots of, of, of kind of technology trends kind of in, in that vein. I'm curious what water treatment technologies you think have the most potential to become predominant in say 2035. I, I think electrochemistry is gonna become more and more important. I think so far electrochemistry has been overlooked. There are opportunities for electrochemistry replacing existing processes. Uh, the, the, the challenge there is that you're replacing existing capital equipment. So that's a slow, pretty slow. Um, I, faster, I think, is going to be a, a, a implementation of IoT, machine learning, AI, basically industry 4.0 kind of things to reduce water footprint, uh, optimize operations, increase efficiencies, reduce operating costs. Um, I see also satellite imaging, big data and AI coming together to help predict water availability and monitor wetlands, coastlines, etc. Um, and then I also see desalination is going to continue to be important. Membrane filtration is going to continue to be very, very important. It's going to continue to grow. But I believe that the main innovation there is not going to be in um, new materials for these uh, devices, but rather ways of getting them to operate better through changing the hydraulics, how the water flows through them. Because if you look at them today, they're quite inefficient. Uh, and there are ways of saving energy and, and improving performance by changing the hydraulics. Um, and, and then the last one I would mention is that there will be innovations that allow you to use low-grade energy for upgrading the water. Right now you have to use electricity or you have to use a steam boiler or high quality energy. But if you could start using the, the inherent heat in wastewater, for example, then you could start kind of improving the performance and reducing the, 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 the footprint of, of some of these plants. So I see those kinds of, of some key technologies that are, that are coming. Tell me about Mazarin Ventures. Why does it exist? Why did you join? And what is your investment thesis? Yeah, so, so, so we formed Mazarin Ventures because we, we saw an unmet need and a disconnect between the challenges surrounding water quality and quantity 
and the rate at which innovations that help address water risk in all its forms were introduced into the market and their ability to gain traction. I know, I know that's a mouthful, but there, there are a couple of things in there. Everything around water can really be come down to water quality and quantity. That's everything you do with water. You, you, you're adjusting quantity or you're adjusting quality. If you look at the, the challenges, the challenges is really a question of risk. You, you need to manage the risk that water, it could be an individual personal health risk. It could be a risk from a, say, a, a bottle, a, a bottling plant for having enough water to make their product. So the, the risk is kind of a, a good way of looking at a water um, and what the innovations that are required are those that help manage and manage that particular risk. And then if you look at the challenges for the small companies out there that are, have innovations, it is that it takes really long for them to get anywhere. And, and it's been really hard if you look at it for them to gain traction. And, and it com comes back to uh, their, their we, we, we felt that the, the innovation around water technologies would be much more impactful if there was a group with deep domain expertise that we have and experience in working with the different stakeholders and also understanding the complex value chain. Because there is a complex value chain here. When you, when you, when you go in and, and want to work with a dairy, the likelihood of you going in and talking to the plant manager to getting it done is, is, is next to zero. These, these are all part of bigger conglomerates. They already have service providers. They already have commitments. They have regulatory pressures. It, it is really a complex environment and it's hard for these small companies to, to know how to approach it. And we wanted to help them do that. And we do that by providing a, a variety of kind of a components. You're looking at things like, like a social capital, human capital, intellectual capital, in addition to financial capital. And we want to provide all four of those. And we do that through Mazarin Ventures. So yeah, as, as you can tell, I'm pretty passionate about this because I, I've been stuck with doing it for many years. And one of the things that's driving me personally is that I want to be able to share what I've learned with these companies and help them succeed. And I do that by helping them in all those different ways. Yeah, that's really very important. Uh, commercialization of scientific breakthroughs requires more than just financial capital. There is so much money out there and that is easy to access, but deep industry expertise with a solid network and connections is absolutely crucial. Can you give me an example of some startups you invested in and the problems they're tackling? Yeah, I'll give you two examples. One of them is called Simple Lab. And really, their fundamental approach is that they want to democratize access to water quality data. So it does, they have made it possible for individuals to get certified water analyses done at the competitive price, and then also communicate the results in a way that even a lay person kind of they understand what it means, and it 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 gives them an idea of what to do with that information as well, how they can correct it. So uh, basically you send some, a sample in to, to uh, you buy a box that gets sent to you, you fill it up with water, you send it back and a week later you get the report and you get an online uh, kind of a, 
as well component of it. And it tells you that your water has a score of 80, uh, which is good, but you could be better if you did this and this and this. And then you have, of course, a detailed analysis as well. But then beyond the consumer, the, the simple lab introduces efficiencies uh, that allows utilities as, uh, or NGOs or other interest groups to in a cost-effective manner survey the water quality in a neighborhood, in a wetland, in an aquifer, in a lake, and what have you, and put this information in the hands of people who are trying to make a difference. And then you take one more step back. They are, they are now the owners of millions and millions of data points on water quality. So now you can provide an enterprise view. And in fact, they're already doing some of this uh, for free uh, where you can actually go in and see a heat map of water quality and things like that. Uh, and so it, it has kind of builds out from that, but that's a good example of Really, there's no innovation when it comes to doing the analytics. They're still using the same analytical techniques. In fact, they, they don't even have a lab. What they are doing is they are, they are creating a, 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 they have created relationships with hundreds of labs, accredited labs, and then they just ship the samples to the lab that's most appropriate for the test and can provide it the most cost-effective way. And then they take the data from the lab and report it back. So, so they're basically creating efficiencies in the, in the system that didn't exist before. We sometimes call them the, the Uber of water because that's really what they have done. So it's a business model innovation more than a technical innovation. And we see great things for them. And then very much different uh, where you have a technical innovation is a company called Conservation Labs. And Conservation Labs, their fundamental premise is that in order to manage water consumption, you need to be able to measure it and understand it. But measuring water flow is not easy. Well, in principle is easy, but the actual implementation of measuring water is kind of challenging because in most cases you need to cut the pipe. So now you have a cost of cutting the pipe, first of all, to put in the sensor. And then you need to have some kind of a sensor monitoring the flow. Now there are uh, non-contact sensors, things you could put uh, non-invasively on a pipe, but those are usually kind of expensive or all the ones that are out there are expensive and they're a bit finicky as well. They do not operate very well unless you know, you need to have number of feet of straight pipe and all kinds of things specific for that. So what they have done is that they go back to something we all know. You can hear the water flowing in a pipe. You hear it and you hear it because the, the friction of the water against the side of the pipe. They have put a microphone on the pipe and then they listen to the pipe and not only that, what they do, they, they take that sound and divide it into frequency bands. And then they look at the intensity and the distribution within those frequency bands and using that. And then they use machine learning to calibrate these things so that they, so they can basically, you can put it on the pipe and a week later, you will have an accurate flow meter on your pipe. And then to top it off, because of the way they do these things, they're able to tell what device is using the water as well. So you can tell if it is a dishwasher, they can tell if it's a coffee machine. So if you are a Starbucks with, with thousands and thousands of, of, of franchisees, you can now create an enterprise view of all your different water usage within a geography. And you can also detect if you're gonna have, if you have kind of water waste, say a faucet stands running for 20 minutes when it shouldn't. 
yeah, you can detect it and you can take corrective action. And then beyond that, it can also detect what's normal water use and, and then they can detect leaks. So you can detect a leak before it really has created too much damage. So again, this is really an innovation in data science and, and analytics that's being applied to water. This has been really eye-opening. Thank you so much again for sharing your insight with me, Anders. I'm happy to do so.